new Wizards of the Coast product announcements this coming Tuesday. We're going to have a spotlight of the Remarkable Guilds Kickstarter. And we're going to take a look at Call from the Netherdeep. The Netherdeep calls, but should we answer? All on today's Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea from Sly Flourish, your pal. And today we're going to talk about all things D&D on this show. The Lazy D&D Talk Show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help support shows like this, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish and clicking in the show notes below. You get access to all kinds of exclusive material, exclusive products, previews of things to come. But most of all, you help me be putting on shows like this. So to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much. I think it was last week we found out that Wizards of the Coast is going to be announcing new things on Tuesday. They reached out to a bunch of different elements of the press. I don't know who counts as press in these strange days. And said, we are going, they, they had some kind of special Friday thing. I wasn't invited. But they uh, talked about it there and then embargoed it for Tuesday. So we're all going to find out about what it is on Tuesday. There's a great deal of speculation. If you go to N-World, N-World has pretty good, pretty good announcements about or pretty good discussions of what they are announcing. And they do some fun math of looking back of what playtests had come out about six months previous as an indicator of what products might be coming out. We know that they are doing some Dragonland stuff, but that playtest just came out. So I, I'm pretty sure it's safe to say it's not Dragonlance. There's good speculation about this Travelers of the Multiverse and the kinds of things that were in that. And I'm not going to say what it might be, but there's like a big image in the center. And then there's questions about Planescape. And then there's questions about what kind of format. Is it going to just be a book? Is this going to be adventures? Is it going to be a campaign thing? Is it going to be a box set? We don't really know. So it's fun to speculate, but really we can wait three days and find out, right? I think day after tomorrow we'll know for sure, and and that will be very interesting. So I, of course, am interested to find out what it is. Well, you know, one of the things like, are they going to announce the new starter set, right? That would be very interesting to hear about. So I'm very interested in this. It's funny because I, I have a bunch of friends and I talk about this kind of thing, and one of my friends brought up that like they're worried. He said, I'm worried about, like, if it's Spelljammer, I'm worried about what direction they're going to take with Spelljammer. And to me, this brings up, like, this interesting thing of when you apply the word worry to the things that Wizards of the Coast is going to do, we might be giving them too much hold over us, right? If we worry about what they're going to do, then we're, we're handing our feelings over to a company who doesn't have feelings, right? The people there have feelings, certainly, but it, the company does not. And so I was like, hey, what, what they do is what they're going to do, and that'll be cool, right? And, and if you are worried that it's not going to be true to the original Spelljammer, you have the original Spelljammer. I bought it, right? I've got it on my shelf. You can buy a print-on-demand copy of the original second edition Spelljammer right away. So, yeah, we don't need to, yeah, as GM Cromie says here, we don't need to drive ourselves crazy trying to predict what the new stuff is going to be because we're going to find out in two days, right? And it doesn't really matter because we're not going to have it in our hands in two days anyway. All right, so it, it's fun. It's kind of fun to think about, right? But it, it, it isn't, it isn't. And then the other one is like, I, I, I'm, I'm telling this to myself as much as to anybody, right? That worrying about what they're going to do with it like I, you know, if I think about a new starter set, I know what I would like them to do with a new starter set, but they're going to do it or not. So, so we'll, we'll find out, right? We'll see. We'll see what they're going to do. We'll see is always a good, a good attitude. And they're going to do what they're going to do, right? And I, none of it is going to break our game. None of it is going to change how we want to run our stuff. We might take it and go, this is great. We might look at it and go, eh, it's not really for me. I've done that with products in the past. We could do it here too, right? So... 
Yeah, yes. Rango Varg says, Mike, we shouldn't care so much about what Watsi does. Also, Mike, Watsi doesn't invite me to things. That's true. Those are those are both those are both true statements. And am I really upset that they didn't invite me? Not really. Right. I I I I had a fine Friday without it. And what does it matter? I also don't like the idea of being sort of beholden to Argos and stuff like that. I don't I don't really because you're you're kind of an element of their marketing campaign then, right? And if I'm under an embargo, that means that I'm not being true. If I'm, I'm being overly, I'm being overly, you know, judgmental about this. But like, I, I serve you, right? You're my, you're you, you are who I'm here for, not them. And so I am here to help you navigate this wonderful hobby of ours. And that's first and foremost. And when I get into things like like embargoes and and, and other things like that. Am I am I still serving you? I don't know. I, but you know, I just, I know. again, that's judgmental. I know, I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to take away from those who did have the embargo, right? And and did follow that because it's not like they're not serving people too. So yeah, I don't know. Anyway, be very interesting to see. There was a mystery tweet uh, with some crystals that I guess people started to like deconstruct and try to figure out what they said. Again, you can go to N World and read posts about what it means, or you can wait three days, work on your adventure, and wait three days, and you'll find out all about it. Call from the Netherdeep, the second Wizards of the Coast published book for the Critical Role, the worlds of Critical Role, and the second Critical Role book to come out this year, the other one being Taldorai Reborn, which was published by Darrington Press, the official press of the Critical Role company and people, just came out. Now, full disclaimer, I have some kind of license with D&D Beyond because I wrote for them back in the day. So I get all of the new products that come out added to my D&D Beyond account for free. I don't, I don't have to pay for it. So I have not bought my own copy of Call from the Netherdeep. And the discussion that we're going to have is based on my preview, my, my, my skim read of Call from the Netherdeep, which I got on D&D Beyond. So I want to make sure that that is, that that is clear. And the real question is like, who is it for? Right? Who is this? I mean, there's lots of questions. Is it good? Yeah, it's fine. It's it's. I I, I read it and I, I liked it. I thought it was had a very interesting start. I think it is a particular style of adventure that we don't really see coming out of Wizards of the Coast these days. I'll talk a little bit about that. And it's beautiful, right? I mean, I haven't seen the physical version. I don't know if I'll probably buy a physical copy. I haven't yet. I'm, next time I get to the game shop, I'll probably pick one up. But I. But, you know, it, it looks as solid as anything coming out of Wizards of the Coast, obviously. And there's lots of interesting things. Like, I, you know, I think it's really interesting. I'm very curious about the licensing, but only from like a business perspective. And that really doesn't matter. Yeah. So that brings up the, the art is really good. The art is really, you can sit here staring at my list or we can actually look at it. Why don't we actually, what do you, what do you say? What do you say we actually look at the book? So... Yeah, so lots of interesting stuff. Really, really cool artwork. This got me right away. As soon as I saw Moon of Ill Omen, I'm like, ooh, evil moons. I love evil moons. It has both evil moons and cultists. So you know that it's hitting Mike Shea's, Mike Shea's checkbox of cool things. Evil moons and cultists, particularly cultists that follow evil moons. I am, I am, I'm all for it. Yeah, the cover is this beautiful, beautiful cover, right? Really cool art. One of the interesting things and one of the neat things about the design, which you may love and you may not, is that it is they they clearly reach out to the critical role community to bring in the artwork that they put in this book. I know they did that with Wild Mount. I know they did that for Taldorai Reborn. I know I'm I'm pretty confident they're doing it with this book too, which means you're going to have a lot of different styles of art in this book. A lot of different styles of maps as well. Not all the maps came from one cartographer. So, if you are looking for complete consistency in art, you're not going to find it in here. If you're looking for a wide 
variants of wide amount of different kinds of art, you're you're definitely you're definitely going to see that. When it comes to things like maps, I think the quality of the maps is a little inconsistent. Some of the maps are really great. Some of the maps, I was like, eh, it's fine. It'll serve, but it's not quite as good as the other maps. So I like that. The adventure itself is what I I, I believe more linear and more focused than most of the adventures we have seen coming out of Wizards of the Coast. I've referred to the Wizards of the Coast adventure style as the yam-shaped adventure. It starts off in, in one starting area, widens out in parts of it where you do lots of different things and go lots of different directions, have lots of little mini adventures, and then narrows back down again. The good examples of this are like Curse of Strahd, where you start off in Barovia, and then you wander out throughout the whole area, and then eventually go to Castle and face Strahd. The same with Tomb of Annihilation, right? You start at Port Nianzaru, you expand out from Port Nianzaru, and you go in any direction across Chult, and then eventually you narrow back down to the city of Omu and to the, the Tomb of the Nine Gods. So they have this sort of widened thing. Now, you look at other ones like Rhyme of the Frostbane, it's very wide in the beginning. Hey, there's like 14 different quests you can go on, and then it sort of narrows down and narrows down and narrows down until it gets more focused. So they generally, some of them follow this style, not all of them, though. So Waterdeep Dragon Heist, for example, has a pretty linear structure. There's not, there, there's a couple chapters where it kind of widens out and you do some things. But anyway, that's more yam-shaped. This one I would consider to be more of an episodic adventure, more of an adventure path, because each chapter is sort of its own big adventure that has its own big thing going on. And then each one of the chapters is connected to the next chapter as a big part of the story, which is a different adventure style. It is not a, it is not good or bad. These are, it's just a different, a different way of handling it. It means that from a DM's perspective, you certainly have a better idea about how this adventure is going to go because you know that you have these big chapter jumps. It's also something you'd probably want to tell your players that this is going to be, this is, you know, you're going to have a focused set of focused direction. You're, you're, you're going to want your players to hang on to this and not say, oh, I'm going to go off and, and do my own thing. There are some different ones. I think, I think it's in Jewel of the Hope where they have uh, this chapter, I think it's chapter four. It's either, yeah, I think it's chapter four where you can join different guilds or different groups, and then those groups will send you off in different quests. So there's a little bit of a widening where you might take a different path and those paths will send you off on different, on different sort of missions. So that that is certainly that is certainly a different way to go. I this this book does you know kind of follow a funny trend that I've seen. Again, great, really, 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 really great art. It follows a trend that I always go like, why why? Why are you doing this? Which is the adventure flowchart. And they did this in Rhyme of the Frostmane too. The difference between Rhyme of the Frostmane and this one is, I'm pretty sure this one actually does follow the way the adventure goes. Rhyme of the Frostmane had an adventure flowchart. That isn't a flowchart. It's a linear list of chapters. But in Rhyme of the Frostmane, it didn't work out that way. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily work out that way. So this one, at least you have a, like a one sentence summary about what the chapter is going to be, right? But really, do I need, like, this seems like a lot of space, to basically say the book is going to happen in chapter order and here are the things like, I don't know that you need that. I don't need, you don't need a flow chart for this. Just list the chapters out and give a summary about what happens. In fact, give me two or three sentences per chapter. And they might do that elsewhere. I might, I might be missing it, but like, that's not a flow chart, right? That's a list. And, and it's a list of the chapters in chapter order. We call that a table of contents in some circles. So I just think that that's pretty funny. And the interesting thing also is this adventure starts at third level. So you begin already pretty meaty. Many, many GMs already start their characters at third level. They, they like third level. 
players have been playing for a while. Some many groups of players have been playing for a while now. They're used to third level. I would not have been opposed to a short half of you know take that flowchart page and make it a here are some adventures the characters might go on to take them from first to third level because it doesn't take very much to go first to second second to third right and i'm not saying like you need even need adventures you could just say here are some scenarios that you might might, might consider they do say hey you can go run they'd say it right here if you want this adventure as part of a campaign they start the first level adventure unwelcome spirits ideal for first level characters and can be used to advance them to third that's great but that means another book right and that's fine Right. I'm not I don't mind it. And, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if people had both books, but it's a kind of a rare thing in a wizard's book to say, if you want to do this, you need this other book. I think about the way that Princes of the Apocalypse did it, where I think they had like, up, was it up to fourth level? I think they had a bunch of adventures that were at the end of the book that said, if you want to get characters up to this level, you can do it. Curse of Strahd did the same thing. I would not have minded a two page or four page adventure or even a one page Here's a description of, of things that you could do that could get them to, to third. Mostly because I still think that if you're brand new players, and you might be brand new players playing this book, I, I like starting it first. I like starting it first anyway. I just like to watch the characters grow. I don't want to keep them there very long. Like, boy, I'll tell you, you stay there a long time in, in Wild Beyond Be the Witchlight. But I like to start a character as a first level, even if I keep it there long, because it gives me a chance to learn what the character's like. If you start at third, you already have this big pile of stuff. You already have your subclass. You already have a lot of power. I want to I want to see the character grow into that. So I, I like, I know I'm, I'm I, I don't know if I'm in the minority or not. I know there's lots of people that prefer to start at third because that's where you're a really meaty character with a lot of options. So I think it's fine. Like, I think it's a, a fine direction that they go. I'm not, I'm not complaining. I think my only complaint would, it would be nice if they had options to take characters first to third, small, doesn't have to be a chapter, doesn't have to be a great big piece of the book. A couple of scenarios, like an encounter that gets you to second and maybe another encounter that gets you to third. Something like that. That would have been nice. But it's interesting. It goes all the way to 13th level, so you know that it's going to be pretty meaty, pretty meaty at the end of this. So a big question I have, I'm not going to go through the whole adventure. I'm you know, just, this is really a spotlight. Like you'll know, you'll know if you want. But so a big question is like, who is it for? Is this, is this adventure for you? And I, I kind of block this into different, into different segments to decide, is it for you? The big, to me, the big differentiator on whether or not you should pick this up is, are you going to run it? Do you feel like you want to run it? Right? If you think you're going to run it, it's worth picking up. If you don't think you're going to run it, I, I don't know that I'd spend 50 bucks on it. Right? If, if you want to just enjoy the world of Critical Role. If you are a fan of Critical Role, you love watching the show, you love what, what they do, you just enjoy that and you want to spend some time in that world, I highly recommend getting the Tal'Darai Reborn book, right? That is a great big encyclopedia book that talks all about the world and shows all kinds, and, and it's the same thing. It's made by Critical Role, right? It's made by those authors. This this is too, right? Matt, like Matt Mercer and James Hake are both authors of this. Matt Mercer and James Hake are also authors on, on, on Tal'Darai Reborn. So it's definitely the pedigree of the book Book is still very much critical role people. This was a critical role book published by Wizards of the Coast, not a Wizards of the Coast book that kind of pays lip service to critical role. It's definitely not that. But as a fan, if you're just a fan, just a fan, right? If you're a fan who doesn't plan on running the adventure, but you just like the world, Tal'Darai Reborn is where I would go. Now, if you're a huge super fan and you just want everything, if you got bobbleheads and stuff, why not? Right. Go ahead and pick it up. If like I'm, you know, who am I to tell you you shouldn't spend your 50 bucks? Go ahead and spend it. But to me, the real thing about like, well, if you're on the fence, if you're like, oh, I don't know, should I get it? Should I not get it? The big question is, are you going to run it? Right. And if you're if you if, even if you're like, are you thinking about running it? If you're thinking about running it, it might be worth picking up. 
I don't think it's just, again, just my spotlight view. I don't think it's a great adventure to shatter into parts and then wire into other parts of your adventure. I think a lot of it is wired around the world that we have here, which you would want being a critical role adventure. And because it is a relatively linear episodic adventure, I don't think it's the kind of thing where you can just sort of grab a dungeon out of it and move that dungeon somewhere else. You probably could, but there's a lot of other factors that are going on in this, in this adventure that, you know, because it's episodic, because there's a lot of like story elements that are moving from chapter to chapter, and, and the chapters describe these story elements and how they've evolved. If you're just grabbing a piece, you're not going to have all of those hooks in there. So that that is kind of another difference between this and what I would consider to be one of the other traditional D&D 5th edition adventures. Is like Wild Beyond, well, not, and probably not Wild Beyond the Witchlight. Wild, Wild Beyond the Witchlight also has a really tied together story. But Rhyme of the Frostmaiden is probably a better adventure to be able to shatter and use into, into different parts. Like you could just grab, and I've, I've had friends that have done this. You could just grab the city of Yethrin in rhyme of the frost maiden and use that on its own because there's so few ties to anything else it works but in this one the ties are pretty heavy so i think it's not as reusable in other areas i think the main thing is are you going to want to run this adventure you know that's out that's laid out here that's a big question should you buy it if you're not a critical role fan again i like to think of this the same way i think of the magic the gathering books the fact that it's a magic the gathering book doesn't matter if you imagine that Wizards of the Coast just said, we have made this new world, and then in this case, they didn't, someone else did, but like, we we have this new world, we are exploring this new world, like Strixhaven. Strixhaven is also another book that's a big chunk of adventure set in a different world, set with a different theme, set in a different style. And it doesn't, you know, like, you don't have to be a magic fan, right? I didn't even hear of Strixhaven. I didn't even know there was a Strixhaven until I saw this book come out. I knew it was a Magic the Gathering based world, but who, you know, who cared? So this is an idea of like, well, Wizards of the Coast is putting out an adventure path in a different world, right? And it's a really cool one. I like the world of Tal'Darai is really, really great. I love the world of Exandria, right? I love Tal'Darai Reborn. I think it's really neat. And to me, the idea that we have these other worlds that we can explore, these other worlds we can try out and run. And they, they have a lot of really like neat evolutions of things from kind of the traditional fantasy that we have. So you can think of it that way. Even if you're not a Critical Role fan, you don't need to be to run this adventure, right? Like you can, like they have a section called What's Critical Role? As though you bought the book and you have no idea. So they're saying like, hey, it could be that you don't know. The neat thing is you have this adventure, you could run it. And then if you got into the other Critical Role stuff, you'd understand. So again, I would say it doesn't matter if you're a Critical Role fan or not, if this book is worthwhile. To me, the worthwhile bit is, are you going to run it or not? Right. And if you're going to run it, I think it's worthwhile. It is an adventure book, which I think makes it different than a source book, a world book like Tal'Darai Reborn, because Tal'Darai Reborn, I think anybody can enjoy it. Right. It doesn't matter if you're going to run it or not. It doesn't matter if you're playing D&D or not. You can read that book and really enjoy it. This one, you might enjoy it. You might. It might be fun to read. Right. Is it worth 50 bucks if you're not going to run it? I don't know. I mean, you have to ask that. But I probably my my feeling is. I wouldn't spend 50 bucks if I wasn't going to run it. There is one interesting angle I don't want to I don't want to skip by that they that they added into here that I think is really worth note and everybody's talked about so it's not it's not a huge surprise which is that a big piece of this adventure is the fact that there is a rival adventuring party that you are intertwined with as you go through it that you're 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 weaving in and out of these relationships with this other adventuring party which is a really neat angle right? It is also a complicated angle because it's not like you just have one or two NPCs that are kind of dropping into your adventure from time to time. In this case, it is a full set of other characters, one character for each, for each group, right? Each member of your group. And 
your, you know, they, they, they have evolving stat blocks, right? So they have per each tier, they have like tier one stat blocks, tier two stat blocks, and tier three stat blocks in the back of the book, right? Each of them have pretty deep personalities, who they are, what they want, what they care about, and, you know, how you're going to get involved. They have the goals, they have, you know, as I said, the stat blocks, and, you know, relationships and, and you know, they have this whole thing about like keeping track of attitudes, right? And, and it's, it's tricky, right? This is, that's a lot of NPCs to handle that you have to think about. It's not a lazy DM idea, right? It's the same kind of thing where you think about the guides in Tomb of Annihilation. The guides were interesting, but they could also be trouble as well. Now, I think in this one, because you know they're so intertwined in the adventure, it's what it, I think it's a factor that makes this adventure very different than like a normal adventure. It's not like you're just going from place to place, getting involved in quests, doing the quests, and moving forward. This one, this is this angle that's sliding in and out while you're going that's making it really interesting. It is definitely a, a critical role kind of thing because critical role definitely is a character focused story and the having rivals really matters. Having these, these interconnections really matters. So I think that it, it could be very cool. It will also be a complication. It'd be a complicated thing for a DM to run. I think it looked complicated to me, right? But again, I don't like complications. <laughs> I'm a lazy DM. So that's, it's very interesting. Could you pull them out? pull those groups out and add it somewhere else? Probably. But again, their motivation is really built on what's going on in the adventure as well. So the, the, the adventure is really tied tightly together. Not a problem. It means that it's going to run really smoothly, but it means that it's not easy to like break, to, to, to break parts out. So I definitely want to bring that up because it is clearly such a big focus of this. Of this, I really like it. They do describe like session zeros. They have a good section about making mistakes. Lots of, lots of really good text in here. Really, really well well-written stuff that helps you be able to run it. But to me, the main, the main question that I would ask when you're considering this book is, is this something you want to run, right? Now, you know, and, and, you know, again, you might just say, well, I just want to read stuff like this. And then you're fine, you buy it, right? I bought Strixhaven, right? And I don't plan on running Strixhaven, but I wanted to buy it because I wanted to take a look at it. And I like the art. And I think like when you buy the physical books, the artwork and this stuff is really different than what you get online. It's really different than what you see elsewhere. So you know, online is practically useful, but, but physical is what, what really looks good, which is why I, 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 I am definitely going to pick up this book. I haven't yet, but I'm definitely going to pick it up. So that is my spotlight for Call of the Netherdeep. I think it is really cool. I think it is definitely worth considering if you're going to run, if you're going to run an adventure. And if you plan to run it, I think it is worth your money. If you're not planning to run it, I would steer you towards uh, Taldorai Reborn. I think Tal, and even maybe, and Wildmount, right? But Wildmount and Taldorai Reborn are both source books that let you enjoy the critical role world that aren't totally woven into an adventure that you might not have run, not end up running. So I would take a look at that. So let's do a Kickstarter spotlight. There is a company, Loresmith, who has done a number of Kickstarters. They have run, I think, 14 Kickstarters. But they've also had, this is their fourth of the Remarkable series. They have Remarkable, let's see if I can remember them all, Remarkable Inns, Remarkable Ops, Remarkable Cults, my personal favorite, and now Remarkable Guilds. These are very well put together books that focus on a specific thing that you would want to drop into your game, right? If you need an inn, you want a fleshed out inn with a lot of stuff going on, it's a really good modular approach. I, I, I admire their focus on building a product that, that hits a particular 
niche, right? That this idea of like, we're just going to have a book about ins. And it's a handy thing to have in your DM toolkit. It's different than like, we're going to build a campaign world or we're going to build an adventure and that adventure has an in, right? That instead you can focus on, you know, here's just a book with a bunch of ins in it, right? And a bunch of different descriptions and they're, they're rich and they're thematic and they have everything else and they look really good. The price of the Kickstarter is very reasonable, 15 euros, which I think is like 18 bucks, um, depending on the time of day and the state of the US dollar. The, which is for, for a pretty, pretty decent PDF. And they, they have sample pages, right? They have a gallery. They have this thing where you join the Discord to see the full gallery. I guess that's because it's too difficult to get it all up on Kickstart. Hey, my mom is here. Hi, mom. And, but I can tell you. So, so to me, like a good way of like, huh, what's this going to look like? Is to look at their previous products. So I thought, I have it here somewhere. I have Shocker Remarkable Cults. Remarkable Cults and Their Followers, which was their last, their last Kickstarter. And it, it was a 101 page, 181 page book. The writers are JVC, Josh, Josh Perry, JVC Perry, Jeff Lee, R.P. Davis. I don't know Jeff Lee and R.P. Davis, but I know Josh Perry. That dude can write. He writes like the devil. He's everywhere writing in all kinds of things. And so I know like, oh, Josh wrote it. I'm, I'm, I'm on board great big book with lots of different cults. This is funny because this is actually one of two different books about cults because Demon Cults and Secret Societies is also a Cobalt Press book. So I'm I'm good on cult. Oh, by the way, we should. You know, th there are some really good occultist stat blocks in Call from the Netherdeep. You should check those out. And it's a really cool design and layout. Like I'm, I'm looking at this because it's like, I imagine that their design and layout that they did for Remarkable Cults will be similar to the one they do for Remarkable Guilds. The difference between a cult and a guild is one's trying to murder you, I think, and the other one is not. The other one you might work for. So the idea of Remarkable Guilds as, hey, there's these organizations that you could connect to and you could, and you could work out. Those, I think, are really, are, are really cool. Look at that. You know, that's scary. Who's that dude? Scary, right? So... Really, really cool artwork. I'm, I'm assuming the Justicars, right? Really cool. Now I'm like previewing the Remarkable Guild. My point was, you can tell that their layout is really good. The layout and the design are really good. And for 18 bucks for the PDF, which is what I supported. And mostly because like, I can't buy physical books for everything, right? I, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I, I will almost always buy a PDF if it is interesting at all. But physical books, like I better know who's making it. And I need to know that this is going to be something. There are only particular companies where I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll buy their physical books. And I would buy this. If you're, if you're into physical books, if you want to have this stuff, I think it would be, I, I'm not knocking their physical version. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll be fine. I have not seen it. So I can't say how good the physical product is, but I imagine it's pretty good. I haven't heard any complaints. So yeah, very reasonable, very reasonable prices. Good stuff. They are, you know, lots of different stretch goals that they have coming up. And it looks really cool. So I'm on board and I, I, you can see I backed it. I backed it 15 bucks and I recommend it. So if you want to take a look, if you want a book of guilds that you can drop right into your game again, and oh, one thing I should mention, you can buy all of the previous remarkable books here as well. I think it was, it was cheap. It's like 40 bucks. 40 bucks are all of them, right? So the, for basically the price of not quite two, right? More, you know, two and a half, 40 euros. For 40 euros, which is, I don't know, $45 is what it says, about 45 bucks. You get four PDFs. That's a really good, if you don't have any of these, if you don't have inns, cults, shops, and guilds, you know, 45 bucks for all the PDFs, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good deal. I would recommend that. I would recommend that deal if you don't have any of these. So really cool stuff and you should check them out. What else? 
Look at us burning through time. So last week I talked about an idea that I'd been kicking around called attack on a miss. And the idea here was, if you think about, I, I have discussed previously the four monster, four dials of monster difficulty that I think we DMs can keep in our toolbox. It's a really good, handy way to modify monsters either before a game, before a session or before an encounter or during an encounter to change how that encounter feels to make it the most fun. Those four dials include the number of monsters. Are there a lot of monsters or little monsters? That's a big dial you can turn. Uh, the number of hit points those monsters have. Do they have a lot of hit points or little hit points? That's a dial you can turn during combat. If it's like, hey, it's gotten boring, time to turn that dial down, have fewer hit points. Uh, are, do you want your monster to be tougher? You turn it up, you get more hit points. The number of, the amount of damage that they do, again, you have a dial. How much damage are those monsters doing? Do you want to do more? Add some damage. Do you want to do less? Sometimes I feel like we have to, particularly higher challenge ratings. I think it's worthwhile adding more damage because to, to give a greater threat to higher challenge monsters. Same thing, you might want to turn it down a little bit for lower challenge monsters. And then number of attacks, how many attacks they do. And that's a big dial. Like, if you think about the number of attack dial, if you imagine these are like gradients, a lot of them are like gradients of like one. Like you could you could literally shift hit points up and down by one notch, right? One hit point per dial. But the number of attack dial is like a big clicker, right? It's like a big clicker dial. And it's like one, two, three. And two is twice as many as one, right? Like two is a big jump. So the thought about attacking on a miss is that it's a half dial. Right, you can turn it kind of, and the way attack on a miss works is you might have a monster that attacks once, and if it misses that attack, it attacks again. When I talked about this last week, I think I had about four million comments on YouTube. I think it was like six, but it felt like four million. Who were like, "Isn't that just advantage?" Well, not quite. It's kind of you. You could, and if you're only thinking about things purely mechanically, it's pretty close to just having advantage. And why don't you just give advantage to your monster? I mean, to me, advantage means there's a circumstance that's letting them do that for one. And the other one is this actually could stack with advantage, right? The number of attacks and attacking on a miss. Maybe they have advantage on their first attack. They miss with both and then they take their second attack. It is not a vengeful, you shouldn't be using it for vengeance, right? This isn't a way to stick it to a player because your character, your monster missed. This is something that you would put on a monster because the circumstances of the situation warrant it. And a, an example of this would be a ghoul, right? If we take a look at the ghoul stat block, let's pull up a ghoul here, right? A standard ghoul is a challenge rating one, which is a little high. And the reason why it's challenge rating one is because its claw attack can potentially paralyze somebody with a DC of 10, right? And so you might look at a ghoul and you might say, if you, if you were to run like one or two ghouls against a group of second level characters, if they miss with that claw attack, their challenge is really, really low. Like their hit points are not stupendous for challenge rating one, right? They don't have crazy amounts of hit points. Their armor class is low. So if they don't pull off this move, their challenge actually drops pretty significantly, right? And their bite attack, which it does a lot, right, is nine, but it's only plus two to hit. So for challenge rating one, if it misses, it's really, really weak. Right? If it hits and if it pulls off this paralyze attack, it's also it's really, really dangerous and really good. So I mean you could see, you could you could argue that the challenge rating on this is actually high. It's more like a challenge rating one half. I would particularly say that if you compare it to the thug stat block. Let's let's pull up a thug here. Right? The thug the thug stat block amuses me because it's challenge rating one half, but it has thirty-two hit points instead of twenty whatever. Let's you know, let's put these side by side with the ghoul, right? The ghoul is twenty-two hit points, thug is thirty-two hit points. The thug has pack tactics, right? And it hits 
two melee attacks, plus four to hit, five damage each. That's 10 points of damage that it can dish out, potentially with advantage. Now, granted, the ghoul does nine with one hit, but look, it's plus two without any advantage, right? So the idea is like, if you're running ghouls, you might say it tries to swipe you with a claw attack and it misses, it lunges out at you with a bite. That's different than giving it advantage on the claw attack, right? You're giving it, you're saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make, I'm gonna give it a multi-attack action, that's a claw and a bite. And you could decide if you want to pull that off. You probably wouldn't do both. If it hits with the claw and the guy's paralyzed, you probably don't want to have it do a bite right afterwards. The bite is an optional thing that you would throw if it misses. Now, one, you know, couple, couple things I have to say before the comments start showing. One is, you don't have to do this, right? Like, I'm just throwing an idea out there. And if you dig it, you dig it. If you don't, you don't, right? And if you don't dig it, I'm on board, right? I, I, we, we can all try lots of different things. The other one is, I certainly don't think you, this is something you should do all the time. I'm not saying from now on, all monsters have an attack and a miss. No, right? Not even the same monster in the same circumstance should necessarily have it. What I'm saying is, it's something you can keep in your, in your pocket, right? It's another tool. It's there along the lines of giving it an extra attack. You might have ghouls and you might say, I'm going to give them multiple attacks, right? I'm going to give them and they can bite and claw all the time. I, I'm going to throw the, a bunch of ghouls at a higher level group and I'm going to give them lots of attacks because I want them to threaten that group, right? But, you know, in the same way, you might say, I'm going to give them to them, but I'm going to have them primarily only bite if they fail on a claw attack, right? So it's a, it's a little tool we can keep in our toolbox. It's not quite the same as having advantage. If you think it is the same as having advantage, if you read it you're like, or you, you listen to this and you're like, that's the same as advantage. Fine. Go with the gods, right? Like you don't have to, you don't have to agree with me. I'm good. And, you know, but it's a tool. It feels like a tool. So I'm still toying with it. I'll tell you where I used it. And this is going to have, well, I, I won't spoil. There was a particular monster that's in Wild Beyond the Witchlight who hits for a crazy amount of damage compared to his challenge rating. And he has two attacks that hit for 10 damage each at challenge rating two, right? Really 20 points of damage at challenge rating two is really high. And if he hits a character twice, he also has a kicker on that ability that he blinds the person he hits with it which means the second one's going to be an advantage, right? And if it's advantage, it could crit. If it crits, it could be 20 because it's 3d6. So he could do 20 points of damage. He could do like 30 on a crit, right? Oh my God. Fireball. He's doing a fireball at CR2. So maybe. So that is one where you say, you know what? I'm going to lower his and he's only going to swing with that thing again if he misses the first time. Or he also has a dagger attack. There's another monster in, in uh, Rhyme of the Frostmaiden who is a low challenge monster who hits like a freight train and is brought up against low level characters. He gets multiple attacks too, but you could just as easily say he only hits you once. And if he hits you once, he doesn't hit with the second. If he misses, he can attack again. It's just a tool, right? It's, is it the same as advantage? Not quite. Does it mechanically feel the same? Maybe. And a trick with it is, is it a, is it something that the players will see and wonder about? Maybe. And that's where, you know, it's a little tricky. Does the, and that's why you'd want to make sure it doesn't feel like a vengeful attack. You want it to flow into the story and the narrative. You want to make sure it makes sense. And you don't want players to be thinking about like, are you doing this because you're mad at me because you missed with that attack? right? You want to avoid that. So, so think about that way. Anyway, I'm still pondering the idea. It is not formulated yet into something like lightning rods where I played with lightning rods for a while. I thought about it. I used it. I tried it. I talked about it. And then I said, okay, this is a thing. And I'm going to make an article and do an article about it. So I'm not at that point yet, but I'm still, it's still something I'm, I'm considering. Let us do patron questions. So patron questions, let's start off with what, what this is. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon page, I post a thread and I say, these are the, this is the like March, 2022 Patreon questions thread. 
any patron of Sly Flares can put a question on there. I will either answer it directly on the patron. I, I will certainly answer it directly on the Patreon page itself. And I may put it on the list to talk about here on the show. I may also do a short video about it. So these are questions from patrons for March. Nick F says, what can I do when my players ignore NPCs that don't directly approach them? What is the TTRPG equivalent to the floating yellow exclamation point in video games? It's an interesting question. And, and I think there's two, there's, there's questions, there's, there's deeper questions in here, which is why are they ignoring them? Are they ignoring them because they don't know that it's a quest NPC? Are they ignoring it because they're not interested, right? I think these are two important questions to ask in a situation like this. If it's the former, if they just didn't realize that was a quest NPC, that could fall into my general philosophy that players aren't understanding half of what you're telling them, right? My, my general feeling is like DMs, I think, hold their cards too close, too close. And we need to describe more. Be freer with secrets. Be freer with describing things be freer with clarifying the situation because players have a lot going on in their heads and they're not getting everything that you're saying communication is hard Communi transferring information is hard we think about our stuff all the time they're only maybe thinking about it when they're at the table so we have to help them right so if they're missing the fact that it's a quest npc make it more clear. Do you have to put an exclamation mark above their head? I mean, I joke about that sometimes, right? I'll say like a guy comes over with a giant exclamation mark over his head and like, oh, quest NPC, right? You can joke about this because we're all having fun at the game. It doesn't have to be pure, perfect narrative the whole time. The, so how do you, how do you be more obscure? Well, have it like, hello friends, I have a job for you. I need, my, my idiot brother got lost in the ruins of the old watchtower outside of town. If you will go and rescue him from whatever horrors lie beneath there, you can keep whatever treasure you find and I will pay you the fine sum of 50 gold pieces. Very clear. You have a job, you have a thing that you have to go do, you have a place where you have to go do it, you get a reward for doing it. And if you think about D&D quests, that model is a fine model. What do you need to do? Where do you need to do it? What do you get for doing it? right? Those are, those are important tips. So if you clarify to people, right, if an NPC wants a job, wants the characters to do something, they should ask, right? And so that's if the players are having trouble not getting the fact that that's a quest. You could also do the Matt Colville style that he brought up, which is make a card. I, I started doing, I have a Word document now that I use, and I have like fancy text, and it says quest, and then the name of the quest and then reward and what they get for it. And I will write one of these up during the game and I'll say, here's your question, here's your reward. You know, is that gamifying it? Yeah, but it is a game, right? And it's got fancy text with cool old, old style filigrees on it. So it's in world. So that's if they're not getting it. The other question is, what if they're ignoring it on purpose? And that's a different, that's a different question. If they are ignoring it, if, if one thing you should look at, if, like, why are they ignoring it? Are they ignoring it because that quest was boring and this other stuff they want to do is interesting? Well, that's worth you taking time. Why did they think that was boring? Why did they think that was interesting? And maybe shift your game to support the things that they think are interesting, right? If they have things they want to do, how do you steer the game towards the things they want to do? If, however, it's a mismatch between the kind of game you want to run and the kind of game they want to play, it is worth stepping away from the world, getting out a character, talking to them as players and saying, are we happy with the structure of the game we're running? Let's talk about the structure of this game and the, how it's going. This is like 
kind of stars and wishes where you're like, hey, what are you enjoying and what do you want more of, right? That's helpful. But just saying like, maybe telling them that the style of the game I was planning to run is NPCs are gonna give you jobs and you're gonna do those jobs. If that's not the kind of game you want, what kind of game do you want? Or I really don't wanna run the kind of game you want you, that you want. You wanna do shopping games. You wanna go and go on shopping sprees for three sessions. I don't really find them that interesting. So I'll do a little bit of that, but I think it'd be more interesting if you took quests and went on adventures, right? And then hopefully like you can do that during a session zero. Again, like, hey, it turns out session zeros are really useful, right? Built, talking to your players about what the structure of that game is going to be before they've built a character. So they're not like, well, my character doesn't like going on quests. My character likes, he's an apprentice to a wizard and he likes being around town. Well, then what are you doing in a D&D &D game, right? How about retire that guy and bring an adventurer in? But they might not know, right? Maybe they came to with that character already pre-built and you didn't have an, something to give them yet, right? That's why like a session zero and a campaign worksheet that says your character wants to travel with other characters to adventure in the old ruins outside of the town, right? Is in there. And it's like a contract <laughs> that you're making with the player to say, you're going to do this thing. So Nick, I hope that answers your question. I hope, I hope one of those was the angle you're getting at. And I hope some of my ideas might be, might be, might be useful. Victor N. You often talk about creating homebrew monsters by reskinning existing monsters. I do. It's a great lazy DM technique. It's a very powerful technique. One of the most powerful ones. And you've also cited third-party publications like Cobalt Press's Tome of Beasts as good source for unique monsters. Yes. I do that too. When would you be likely to use a third-party monster instead of reskinning one? And how do you know what's available? Do you read the Cobalt Press books cover to cover? Yeah, so reskinning re is really handy when time matters, right? And you want something fast and easy. Reskinning monsters from the monster manual, very straightforward way to go. And you can reskin them almost, not, not I mean, in, infinite is really big, but like a lot, right? You can have a lot more monsters than just by reskinning. So that's really cool. But I also love third-party monster books like the tomes, the various Tomes of Beasts books, Tome of Beasts 1 and 2, Creature Codex from Cobalt Press. There's so many of them. 2C Gaming and all their books. I've talked a lot about them on the show and I love those books too. When do you actually use those? So I'll, I'll give you some examples. I like to dive into those books when I think that the area of a, a campaign or adventure warrants that those kinds of monsters. So an example is when I was running Rime and the Frostmaiden and they were going into one of the old spires of the Netherese. I said, wouldn't it be cool if all of the monsters they faced in that spire were totally different than everything they've faced before? And I could tell them this. I could tell them like, you know, you're, the, 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 the things you're going to find down there have never been exposed to the world above. And it's fun because even the players didn't know what they were, right? And in that case, I took, I think, Toma Beasts 2, it was either Creature Codex or Tome of Beasts 2, one of those two books. And that was that book was the focus for that whole area. I didn't use any books from the Monster Manual. I didn't mix in any other monsters. I, I, I used that book for the monsters. Because there's so many. There was like 300 monsters in there, right? So I had plenty. And I would just stick three by five cards in my book whenever I found a monster that I liked. I, in my notes, I would write like the book and the page number, and I used that. I did the same thing when I ran the city of Eston in my Eberron game. Eston was this old ruined city, part of, you know, destroyed during the last war, where House Kenneth and its artificers had been building lots of war machines to fight in the last war. And those war machines were now wandering around broken and, and in pain and, and in anger at what happened. Some of them were just people. Some of them were like, what if we took 
artificer technology and warforge style stuff but did it on undead like zombies right and then so for that one i actually went to monty cook games arcana of the ancients and beasts of flesh and steel because those books have lots of sort of like science fantasy monsters and i said it's really easy to reskin the sciency part the numenera aspect and turn it into artificer style stuff warforged things and it worked it was delightful, like really interesting stuff that they saw, really cool. It felt like artificer technology, and I just focused on those books. So when I know that a book has a certain angle that I think fits the kind of campaign, I will just switch over to that book and use it. And I did it for those two books, Beasts of Flesh and Seal and Archon of the Ancients for, from, from Monty Cook Games. And then I did it for the, when I did the Netherese stuff, I took a lot of Netherese monsters from Tome of Beasts. I kind of wish I had done more of that when I actually went to the city of Yethrin. And I didn't. I just kind of used what was in the book. So that, you know, failure on me. As far as reading them, I don't read monster books cover to cover, but I will skim them cover to cover. I will, I will flip through, look at all the, the names in the pictures and maybe the one-line description and go through it because I want to, in my head, I want to go, oh, isn't there a monster in that? And I'm sure I forget because we have a ton of monsters. So that is a handy way to go. But if you know that like, oh, I'm going to a region of the world, you can look at the monsters by challenge rating. You can read through the list and then you can go and look at those monsters and you might find some that you like. Certainly all of this is easier and lazier than making your own monsters, right? Building monsters from scratch or building detailed monsters from scratch is a pretty significant activity. Certainly reskinning monster manual stuff is the easiest way. The next easiest way is trying to look for other fun monsters. But it's one of these, like, it's better, it feels like it's better to not have any preconceived notions about what monsters might be in a place and then pull off a book like Creature Codex or Tome of Beast 2 or whatever and find them and go, oh, that would be a really cool one to drop in here and then list it and drop it in. That's better than trying to have, like, an idea for a monster and trying to go find it, which is going to take forever. So, Victor, I hope that answers. I hope that answers your your question. Hey, look, Scipio two hundred two has a question. Do you have any tips for improvising banter and enemy dialogue during combat? Thinking of what to have an NP, what to have NPCs say says get even more difficult when trying to juggle the situation and manage the mechanics and tactics of a fight. Yes. Do you have any set of standard quips? I I probably do have standard quips. And, you know, you, if you're familiar with my, my discussions at all, I don't mind getting silly, right? I don't, not everything needs to be like deadly serious major story. I don't mind being funny sometimes. And so I will have mustache twirling villains say things that are just clearly wrong, right? I don't mind that. I think, I think the bigger, the bigger point of this question, the bigger, the bigger idea of this question is to always continually think about the game in the world that's happening. Remember that we're talking about a story. When we're in a hard battle with a lot of monsters and they all have complications and maybe we're playing on a grid with a lot of tactics going on and a lot of players, six players with all of their, it's so easy to lose the story because of the mechanics. The mechanics end up eating into the story and we're like focused on it. And I've seen DMs who are just describing the attack, the, 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 the attack, you know, the attack score, the attack roll, how much damage it does and moving on. And like speed is a factor. And we're, we're forgetting that we're telling a story or we're not even telling, we're creating a story, right? That like between us and the players and what's going on in the dice, we're all creating a story. And it, it, we're not really creating a story if we don't talk about it, right? If we don't bring up what that story is. And this is on both players and dungeon masters. What do the attacks look like? Like, what does it look like when that happens? When, what is the enemy thinking? And sometimes like, you know, I, I, this often happens. And I've, I, I don't know how many times you've had this where I, a villain will say like, you know, you dare to enter my evil sanctum you are all of your souls are going to end up in hell. 
And one of the players is like, are you sure? Because like we beat seven other guys like you and we kicked their ass. Are you sure you don't want to rethink your situation here? And then, then the guy would be like, no, I think this is going to be the one. I, I feel like I'm different than them and I'm going to be. So it's, it's kind of funny because like the players are like, we beat everybody, right? In which case a villain might be like, I don't, why am I fighting you, right? Like, this is a really bad idea. I think you could do like the Ozymandias style. I did that for one of my villains where he's like, look, you can face me, but it's already too late. The monster's already on its way, right? Like you can kill me or not. What happened happened, right? So fun ways like that. But I, I improvise them, right? Like I, I improvise like what they would say. Again, I try to get into the head of the monster. Think what would that monster be thinking about this? What, what does it play into? Think about the character hooks. What are the character relationships between the monsters? You know, and and can it tap into it? Can it tell? Can it share a secret, a dark secret? Like, you know, your father's not the good person you think he is, right? Or your father's after you murdered your father, like my one character, after you murdered your father in the street, his soul has been damned and it's your fault, right? You know, can they hurt the characters with words, right? Can they say painful things to the characters, right? So, I mean, I don't, I, I don't think it would be bad to write some out ahead of time if you're gonna do a big boss fight like what are some things that the boss might say i don't think you know i don't think i don't i don't think that would be out of line and i think that would offer some benefit if you're having trouble coming up with them during the game write them out maybe write them on an index card keep that in front of you maybe put in your notes and recall and put little check boxes oh he wants to say this this and this think about like legendary actions like legendary quips right what are the quips that they say Scipio, i hope that answers your question you can let me know if I have if I have failed if I have failed failed you in this. Victor G, do you feel any allegiance to the canon lore of a setting? No. I know you're a, you're a believer in not letting Watsi tell you what your game is. Yep. But I was watching your Ghost of Salt Marsh prep, which I'm running. Awesome. And as I watched you describe the changes you were making, I thought, is that Ghost of Salt Marsh anymore? It is my Ghost of Salt Marsh. And it may not be your Ghost of Salt Marsh, right? We we get to fork the world, right? We are we each have a copy of these worlds in our minds and at our table, right? And we get to decide what we do. My Forgotten Realms has been altered irrevocably by, by the events that my other groups have done in those worlds, right? Like the things that have happened with Tiamat in the Sword Coast have happened. And that's my world. Your world, that might not have happened or might have happened in a different order, right? The, the Watsi hardcover books that take place in the Sword Coast are deliberately obscure about when one takes place. And it drives some of my friends bananas. I've got friends who are like, I can't believe there isn't a timeline. And they like reverse engineer timelines for it. It's like, there's a reason why there isn't one. That's because you get to decide your timeline for you. And they're like, yeah, but what about it? And well, who cares what everybody else is doing, right? And I get it, Adventures League is its own thing, right? But generally speaking, you get to decide. So my Ghost of Salt Marsh, first of all, I, I wasn't ever a Greyhawk player. So I really didn't know major Greyhawk lore. And I took what was in Salt Marsh. I didn't bother to dig into Greyhawk very much, right? I didn't say like, oh, I better go read every other Greyhawk book, which I think is like a problem that people have with like settings that have deep histories, like Forgotten Realms. We're like, oh, I guess I have to go back and read every Forgotten Realms book. No, you're good with what you got, right? Go with what you got and it's fine. So, you know, somebody says, I burned Waterdeep to the ground twice. Perkins can't stop me. Exactly, right? You get to do it. You get to do what you want to do for your, for your game. So I, I, don't, I don't think it's a problem. I don't hold on to canon. I don't, I don't, it, it stops the minute I run my game. And 
you know, I don't, I don't think it's a problem. It's also, I think the conversations are really interesting. I think when you have two groups that get together and two people that get together and say, in my Forgotten Realms, this happened. In my Forgotten Realms, Tiamat won and took over Waterdeep and she has a giant floating citadel above Waterdeep and all of the masked lords are now dragon cultists who work for her. And regularly red wizards of Thay have to act as ambassadors and come over right that's a different take on the on on it i mean you can think of them all like what ifs like you know think about like marvel's what if series right you get to change it however you want it's it's your it's your universe you can do what you want so victor i hope that answers i hope that answers your question is it goes to salt marsh anymore yeah i think when i played it it certainly was i think there's questions of like how abstract is it until it doesn't become it but i don't know that that even matters right i don't th- i don't know that it, i don't know that it matters Eric L, I've had a request from one of my players to not roll their own investigation and persuasion checks. This is kind of like a passive check, but I struggle with where this intersects contested roles. The impetus was skill check dog piles. So I wrote about this, where someone, I'll let me finish the question, where someone rolled low on a check to barter and then everyone else tried. Have you played in games where the DM rolls for players outside of combat? Yes, I, I wrote a, an article, let me find it here. I have a very lengthy article, overly lengthy frankly, called our ability check toolbox, right? First of all, there's no such thing as a skill check. Stick that feather in your cap. Uh, There are only ability checks that are modified by the fact that you may be trained in a skill. So I wrote an article called my ability, of course, I just typed skill check into the thing. So what do I know? Our ability check toolbox. Let me paste this into Twitch. And it talks about all of the things you mentioned. When is when does it make sense for the DM to roll? When does it make sense for the player to roll? When can players dogpile on a situation and, and everyone rolls? When do you use passive checks? These you know, there's so like the ability the simple ability check, this idea of you roll a die, you add a modifier, you check a DC seems so simple, but there's so many ways that it can be used. And there's so many ways where it could be used either poorly or well. So all of the questions that you bring up there are particular circumstances where you'd want to do it. When, it. when does it make sense for a DM to roll an ability check instead of a player? And the answer is when the character wouldn't know the result, right? And you think about like checking a door for a trap is a circumstance where the DM, it's perfectly fine if you don't want to do it this way. And I think the standard way is that the player would still roll. But let's say a DM, let's say a player is checking a door. I want to see if that door is trapped. Very common thing. They go up to the door. You might say, okay, instead instead of you rolling it, what is your perception bonus, right? And they say, my, my, perception, my perception bonus would be plus six. And you say, okay, and you roll on your side. And you say, you don't see a trap, right? That's very different. That circumstance is very different than if they roll and they roll a 19 and they go, well, that's a 25. And you say, you don't see a trap. They are confident there isn't one. But if they roll a two and you say, you don't, you don't think it's trapped. They go, is it not trapped because I missed it? Or is it really not trapped? Now they have this, you know, if it's high, they know it's probably not trapped. If it's low, they think it could be trapped and they missed it. If you roll behind the screen, they don't know either way. They don't know if you rolled high, right? So that that's a circumstance where it's 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 not bad. I, I think it's within your purview to say take the bonus from the character, you roll, and then you tell them what what they saw. That's an example you'd do that. The the pylon, there there's different ways of handling the pylon. The, to me, the big question about whether or not everybody can roll on a skill check is does it make sense that they could, right? And the example is I go to convince the guard that we're good people and he should let us in, and I failed at the check. What's the likelihood the guard is going to let the next person try to convince him? 
right? Probably not great. He's probably already locked down at that point and said, sorry, you guys are all out, right? So that's an example where you'd, you'd want. I think, it's, I think that there's some timing and there's some discussions that have to take place, but you know, there's, there's a matter of pacing in here where the DM needs to stop people and say, before you all roll, you know, if you want to talk to them, you can. And then don't screw them and say, but you might want to have your charismatic bard talk to them instead, and you can aid them and give them advantage. Give them the benefit of the doubt, right? And say like, oh yeah, the assumption is the bard's going to talk to them, but the fighter's going to be standing and say, yeah, behind them in, a, in an enthusiastic voice, and that's going to give them advantage on the. So then you say, this is the kind of check. Can everybody roll? Sometimes. Like if you say like, you know, anybody can notice this thing that's in the room, have everybody roll and somebody will get it, right? So this article, which I will, is linked in the show notes below, I think was like the most in-depth article I've written about ability checks that talks about all these different circumstances, when, when different things make sense, how to handle the pacing, how to handle pylons, all of that is inside of this article. So I hope, I hope you take a look. I hope you take a look at that article and I hope it helps. Thank you, Eric. Condefuse says, in your shows, you frequently reference make the encounter make sense for make sense first. Yep. A lot of people love to read the Monster Man or any number of monster books to peruse monsters. Let's say you are really lazy. How might one quickly understand what monsters make sense together or in a location in an encounter design? The new monster book has one resource really valuable for this. Creatures grouped by biomes sorted by CR. Are there any other resources out there like this? It's a good question. Are other resources that I've seen? I mean, right. So I, I get, I get, I get people, I get angry. People get angry about things that I say sometimes. And sometimes I, I wrote a DM tip that was read the monster manual. And boy, people were upset. Right? And I had like a Reddit thread about like, that's that, look at his terrible advice. Like I stopped listening to Sly Flourish when he said, read the monster manual. And I'm like, that's the least controversial thing I've ever said. Right? Like there's lots of reasons to hate things that I like. Right? There's lots of things I say that are dumb. Why would you pick that one? Like reading the monster manual does not seem like a big deal, right? Why wouldn't you? You bought it. You paid this money. Read that book you bought, right? There's useful stuff in there. So I, I do feel like, and I, I was, I was, I've been reading Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master like 15 times over the past week while we're doing the proofs for the print. And I have it in there. Hey, read, reading the monster manual is not a lazy thing. But it's lazy in the long run. It's, it's upfront work that you can do that, that makes it easy, lazy in the long run. There are areas that are missing from this. There are monsters like, what are all the monsters that surround hags, right? And it's like, do you remember that Catablipi, Catablipuses, Catablipi? And that, what are the Bandersnatches? I don't know, the giant frog things that swallow you? That there are certain monsters that lurk around hags, right? Red caps and, and things like that. I think you could do it by type is a pretty good way. Show me all the fae or the fiends or the undead and then show me the, around the areas of challenge ratings and then go read up that. I think there's tools online that do that. You could use Cobalt Fight Club for this. You could use d Beyond's stuff to sort by, by environment type and things like that. And then, yeah, I know like Xanathar's Guide has random tables by challenge rating and by environment and that's a way to go i'll give you an example where like it's hard for me because like i've been playing DD forever so a lot of monsters i like i kind of know what's going to be around them but like numenera the, you know the monsters are completely unique i've never heard of them before so for me random tables that that have it by environment type is a good way for me to kind of decide what's there and then usually the description gives you an idea of like roughly how many should be there and sometimes the descriptions will tell you the, there are other monsters that are involved here so it's not perfect. It, it, you bring up, there's a good gap here. There's a good gap if somebody wants to fill this gap with a product. 
of like monster, you know, what monsters make sense for various situations. It's more than just environment. It's like who would be around a lich's place, right? A hag. What creatures typically hang around hags, right? And you could sort of do these circles, right? If there, there, I think there's, I think there's, I think there's advantages. There's, 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 I think there's room for for something like this. So Infobro brings up that A5E, the, the advanced 5E, the level up 5E, which is a fully, I've reviewed it on this show before, that they have encounter tables for every monster. So that's pretty good. What other monsters would be around this particular monster? That's that's really cool. I didn't know. I didn't. I, I, I missed that they have that. And Toma Beast has environmentalists as well. So yeah, the environmentalist is probably your best friend, your best friend for figuring that out. Christopher W. says, I'm running a Strixhaven campaign and I feel a little overwhelmed mainly by the number of places the PC might visit, the number of NPCs, the activities that they might do on campus, etc. I don't know how familiar you are with Strixhaven. I've, I've, I've skimmed it. But do you have any general advice for how to simplify a campaign that feels like it's gotten too complicated and too hefty? Yeah, so sometimes a product is just too much, right? We were talking about this when we were talking about Call in the Netherdeep, and I worried a little bit about bringing in an entire other group of rival NPCs because that's a lot of characters for the, for the, for the DM to have to manage and, and evolve, right? It's more than just like a boss or three fronts or whatever you got a whole group that you got to kind of play with and i do recall that strixhaven kind of like tomb of annihilation where you you just show up in that city and in the you know in, in port nianzaru and there's everything right all the stuff is there i think you can break it down the same way that you can develop any city for your campaign which is what are the major locations you think the players are going to get involved in think about that spiral that spiral campaign development right and say which locations are the play you're looking at the characters and knowing the players where are they going to want to go and you might offer some suggestions but you could keep the list to like six or eight and just ignore kind of the rest and bring them in if you need right the same same way with npcs you know you can limit the number of npcs that the characters interact with in Strixhaven, it's a little tricky. Like if they all pick different schools, they're all going to have NPCs that are tied to those schools and that could get complicated, right? But that's kind of the fun too. So how do you, how do you narrow, you know, I, I think you're on the right track of like, how do you narrow it down? But sometimes you just dive into the deep end and you just have it and you, and you have the book in front of you and it's okay, right? There was that, you know, when we were, we were looking at, I lost it already. When we were looking at Call of the Netherdeep, it says like, you're, it's okay to make mistakes, Right? Like this isn't going to be this perfect, tightly woven situation. Sometimes it's going to not run real well. And sometimes you might say, hang on a sec, let me introduce this guy. Or that dude I introduced from one school, it turns out he's from another school. I, I screwed up, right? It's okay. Right? So, yeah, so there's there's tricks. I would say, like, think about that focus. Think about, you know, put yourself in the minds of the characters and the players and say, where do they want to go? And look at the locations. And instead of saying, I'm going to offer up 22 locations, because the other thing is your players are going to get overwhelmed by all the stuff too. They don't want to be overwhelmed any more than you do. So that five to seven locations that matter, that might help. And then you can slowly add in, you know, a couple more, right? You could add in a couple of other things. So, but it's hard and cities are hard. Like, you know, it's, it's a commonly known thing that when you introduce a character to a city, that there's a lot of things going in that city. The cities are, have a lot of variables going on and it's not, it's, they could be, they could be difficult to run. So that what are the major locations that they're going to get involved in? Write those down, focus on those. And, you know, they don't know what's not there, right? And then you can bring other things in as they happen. But it's it can be it can be tricky, especially like Strixhaven is a campaign adventure set in a city. So it's got like, you're also got to follow the adventure, right? And that, that can be tricky. That can be tricky. So I want to thank 
everybody for hanging out with me today. It is always a great pleasure to do this show. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, you can help me out by subscribing to this Life Flourish newsletter, by supporting me directly on Patreon, by picking up any of my books, or by subscribing to my YouTube videos. So thank you all very much for hanging out with me today. We will see you guys next week. Have a great day. Get out there and play some D&D.